Jesus said some, some wild things. He said them to, to catch people's attention. He, he said them to, to make them think. To, to unsettle them in their, their neat and organized thoughts. I think sometimes Jesus said wild things to wake some people up. In our study of uh, the early chapters of John 3 in this series of coming to Jesus, in some of these chapters, there's a few of those wild things that Jesus said. In John 2, when Jesus was standing in the temple there in Jerusalem, he stood up and right in the midst of the temple, right in front of everyone, he said this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That was wild. People heard him and they, what, what could he possibly mean by that? In the next chapter in John 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, Jesus said in that conversation, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know what, maybe we're so used to that phrase, born again, But in that day, that was wild. What did Jesus mean by that? Causing Nicodemus to think, to wonder. Well, that was in John 3. Today we're in John 4. And in John 4, Jesus uses the phrase, living water. What does that mean? Again, he spoke it out loud so that she would hear it and and wonder, what did that mean? And then later, just a bit after that, he said, everyone who drinks of this water, and they were at the the Jacob's well. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whatever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Today we consider this phrase, living water. Living water. That if you drink of it, you will never be thirsty again. What did Jesus mean by that? Living water. We find it in the context of Christ's conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well near the town of Sychar. The outline of my sermon today, if you pull out the outline, take some notes. Uh, we're going to look at, at three parts of Christ's conversation on that day. And as I've been praying about today and about us going through this passage of Scripture and asking God to take His Word and by His Spirit to transform our thinking, renew our minds, I've been asking two things. Here's my intention in this sermon today. The first one is this question. Are you experiencing the living water? Are you? Has your thirst been quenched 
And in so doing, do you recognize and do you know and do you wonder at the significance of this living water? Oh, I've been asking that God by His Spirit would just be moving in every single one of us today as we try to answer that question. And the second question, a second intention for my sermon today. Are you, if you know this living water, are you proclaiming the good news of this living water? Heavenly Father, would you help us today as we look at this passage of Scripture? Would you teach us by your Spirit today? To your glory, in Christ's name, amen. The first part of the conversation that I'd like us to look at is the talk at the well. The talk at the well. There are many teaching and preaching points from Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. I mean, there's so much information here. There's, there's so many things that I would like to point out and to describe to you and help us, have, us, have us think about today, but I can only pick a few. And so would you please allow me to direct your attention to four points of application from Christ's conversation at the well with this Samaritan woman. The first one comes out of verse 4. And I've entitled it, A Divine Must. A Divine Must. John chapter 4, verse 4. Well, look at verse 3. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he, what does the scripture say? Had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. A little description of the geography of of Israel. Judea was in the south. That's where Jerusalem was. Galilee was in the north part of the the country of Israel. And there was a region in between Judea and Samaria, or or Galilee. It was Samaria. And Samaria was a, a little different. Samaria was inhabited by people who, after the exile, after Israel had been in exile, many returned back the people who lived in Samaria intermarried with the conquering nations. The people living in Samaria intermarried with the surrounding nations. And so the people in Samaria and the region of Samaria, right in the middle of the nation, they were social and racial outcasts. And it was said of that day that a good Jew would not travel through Samaria. If you had to get to Judea from Galilee, well, what they would do is they would go east and they would cross the Jordan River and then they'd go north or south, whichever direction they were traveling, and then go back over the Jordan River and go to where they were headed. A good Jew wouldn't travel through Samaria. But verse 4 tells us, and he had to pass through Samaria. 
Why does it say that? Well, that's why I've entitled this a divine must. Why? Because God had ordained the salvation of this woman. And God had ordained the salvation of some of those other individuals, some of the other people of the city of Sychar. And so Jesus had to go to that town and proclaim the good news that the Messiah had come. A divine must. A significant truth. I say to everyone here, are you living? Do you feel like you're living in this random universe? Where all of us are, are just bobbing along at, on the, the sea of chance. Is that how you look at life? Or instead, do we have a sovereign God who is unfolding history? In fact, history is his story. And we have a God who is choosing and calling and bringing people to himself. Jesus had to go to Samaria. The second that I'd like to pull out of this conversation at the well comes out of verses 9 and 12. Look at verse 9 of John 4. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And in parentheses, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I ask you the question, did he answer her question? Or, or look at verse 12. He does this again. She's talking, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and, that, and drank from, from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, and does Jesus answer her question? He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. I think we learn from Jesus' interaction here that there's times to answer the right questions. Jesus didn't really answer her questions. And they were questions that could have and would have started arguments or opinions, the exchange of opinions. Instead, Jesus kept to the main issue. And I think this is a good lesson for us because we like to argue and people like to argue and we all have our pet issues and sometimes in sharing Jesus, the side issues often derail the conversation. Oh God, would you give us wisdom and discernment Lord, you said you'd give us the very words we should say. Lord, would you give us the right words as we share the truth about Jesus? I'm going to push ahead. In verse 16, we see another point I'd like to pull out. In verse 16, it's when Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. If you've read this before, maybe you've wondered, why did Jesus do that? 
she's starting to get it. She's starting to ask questions about this water, and she wants it. And then Jesus says, go get your husband. I think the primary reason why Jesus did this is because whenever we encounter Jesus, whenever we encounter the good news of salvation, we have to come face to face with our sin. And this woman did as well. But there's something else here. We see Jesus in this interaction with this woman. We see him telling the truth without condemning and also without affirming. We see this often in Jesus. When Jesus spoke the truth loud and clear, but it came across in a way that didn't condemn people and and push people away, but also didn't affirm people or condone what they were doing. We see it here with the woman at the well. We saw it when his encounter with Zacchaeus, who was a, a chief tax collector, who was a dishonest man, a swindler of the people of Israel, and yet Jesus speaks truth with him and goes to his house. We certainly see it in Jesus' encounter with the woman caught in the very act of adultery where Jesus spoke truth but did it in a way that wasn't condemning and it also wasn't affirming of their chosen path. How did he do that? What was it in his face that they could see his love for them? Was it in it how how he said the words and the words came across in such a way that they spoke of love? Was it that in all of these encounters, the people who were listening to Jesus would just know that he had their very best in mind? However it was, that's what Jesus did. And oh God, would you help us with this? Because we Christians, we can be so condemning. And we say, well, I don't mean to be, but I have to speak the truth. And and, and we can be so condemning when we do it. And then on the other side, this world is pushing and everything's changing. And this world wants us just to affirm their chosen paths and affirm and condone their lifestyles. And there's this tension between, Lord, we just know the truth. We can't be affirming. And Lord, we don't want to be condemning. Here's another place where we just cry out to God and say, God, would you help us with this? Would you help us? have the same attitude as Jesus, where this, the truth can be said, but said in such a way that it isn't condemning, nor is it affirming. I'm quite certain that many of you in this room are faced with that right now. 
maybe because of uh, the lifestyle of a friend or, or a family member or, or, or some other situation at work, or, or, or as a society is just changing in its morality and its choices and everything around us is changing and, and taking steps away from God's truth, I'm quite certain that many of us are faced with this. Could we cry out to God together, Lord, give us this heart of Jesus, so that people can see it in our faces, in our eyes, or, or, or the way that we say it, that the driving issue of our hearts is that we want the very best for them, and there is love here. Oh, that God would work this into us. And a fourth point out of this conversation of Jesus at the well. It has to do with the living water, with being never thirsty again out of verse 10. Look at it again. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Look at verse 11. The woman said to him, sir... You have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? The, the, the woman, first of all, takes this very literally. When Jesus said living water, it must, something in her mind must have gone to uh, like a bubbling water or some kind of fresh water, the best water. Because here was this well. It was a deep well, and there was a spring at the bottom of it that would bubble up. And the very best water, the freshest water was there. And then there's all the water in the well. And that water that's standing. And yes, it's a good well. That's why they would drink out. But it's standing water. And maybe in her mind she thought, Jesus, how are you going to get way down there? It, it's a deep well. You don't even have anything. We'd, you'd have to have a, a rope and a, a, a bucket or something to go way down to where the spring is to get the freshest water. She took them literally. And then Jesus says, in verse 14, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whatever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We have to deal with this. What did Jesus mean by this living water? So let me try to explain it. There's a couple things that are important. Jesus didn't say, I am the living water. He could have said that because in John, he, there's a number of places where he says that. In fact, in John, there are seven I am statements that Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. He said in another place, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he also said, I am the vine. But here he doesn't say, I am the living water. In fact, if you're there, flip over a couple chapters, maybe a couple pages, to John chapter 7. 
And here's another time when Jesus is in the temple. And it says on verse, in verse 37, this is in John 7, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And what does the next verse say? Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed him in him were to receive it, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And the, John is writing about Pentecost, when the Spirit of God came down and indwelled the believers. And, and so in John 7, it's talking about the Holy Spirit, this living water. So if we go back to John 4, is in John 4, when Jesus, with Jesus' encounter with this woman at the well, is Jesus referring to the Holy Spirit? Now, I, I think yes, but I also think he's referring to much more than that. That the water Jesus offers, the water that satisfies every thirst forever, is the gospel. It is the salvation that he brings. This water, this reason why Jesus came, that's what satisfies us forever. And Jesus came to bring about the forgiveness of our sins, this life in Christ, which the scripture tells us is both abundant and eternal. That is what satisfies us. And we never thirst again. It is adoption into God's family. It is this restored communion with God. It is life in the Spirit. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, it is so great a salvation. It's this living water that truly satisfies. That's why when the angels came, when Jesus was born to the shepherds out in the, out in the fields, they said, this is good news. We have good news which will cause great joy because the Savior has come bringing salvation. This theme of the water, it's a theme that runs through Scripture. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like us to do just a very brief um, glance through a couple, a few passages So would you first open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Jeremiah 2, 13. Hear what God says. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That was a statement of that day. This is a statement of today. People aren't turning to God, the fountain of this living water. Instead, we're digging cisterns of our own. Cisterns, these holding bins, that can't hold water. Would you turn in your Bibles over to Ezekiel? Ezekiel 47. I'm going to read a few verses here. Follow along, listen. Ezekiel's given this vision and he kind of goes on this tour and God is pointing out a number of 
areas, a number of... And then we come to verse, chapter 47, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out of the south side. Verse 3, going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, and that would equal 500 yards. And then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the river had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Goes back to my original, one of my original questions of this sermon. Have you seen it? Do you know this living water? The chapter goes on. It talks about the river and how there are trees growing on both sides of this river. And then down in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, so everything will live where the river goes. And then Jesus comes along and says, I I offer this living water. And this theme of water goes all the way through Scripture. Go to the last chapter of the New Testament, to Revelation chapter 22. And Revelation 22 verse 1 says, Then the angel showed me the, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. and This living water. Jesus came to give us this water. Christian, as you're here today in this service of worship and study of God's word, I I, I ask every single one of us, are we aware of this, of this gift? Like Jesus said to the woman, if you were aware of the gift and the person that's standing before you, are we aware of the gift that has been given us? This living water that quenches all thirst? Or have we forgotten Or, or have we just grown so accustomed? Or, you know, I, I came to know Jesus when I was eight years, eight years old. I was a little kid. Did I ever really know life without Jesus? I'm so thankful for what God has done in my life. But we take all of these things. Have we grown accustomed? Maybe we never ever knew really. Have we, are we just taking it for granted what it means to have our sins forgiven? Or, or do we sit here and we have, sit, we have sat in this living water for so long that we, we forget what it's like to go through life 
not knowing that our sins are forgiven? Or have we forgotten what it's like to live life without peace with God? You know, that's part of this living water that Jesus came to give us. Because of Jesus and what he did for us, this living water just washes over us and our sins are forgiven and we are at peace with God. Have we forgotten what it's like or what it could possibly be like to live life not at peace with God, but still at enmity? Have we forgotten what it means, what it would be like to not have the assurance of life everlasting? Have we forgotten what it would be like to live life not understanding why we are here, how we are here, or what the meaning of all of this is? Have we grown grown so accustomed to this gift of the living water that what Jesus said about not thirsting again, we, we can be people who say, oh man, we love this living water. But you know what? I really would like that too. Uh, you know, this living water is great. It's great. But I'd really like some more of that. Because then I'd be satisfied. And maybe that's something of this world or some other issue out there. And have we lost The truth of this living water that satisfies our search. Here's my solemn exhortation, and then I will move on in my sermon. Followers of Jesus, would you, as a result of this passage, have the truth of this living water, would you ponder your salvation? We can spend a lifetime pondering what Jesus has done for us. We will spend eternity pondering our salvation, plumbing the depths of the living water that quenches our deepest thirst. The second part of this conversation that I want us to look at comes out of verse 29. And if that was the talk at the well, would you briefly consider the talk of the town? The talk of the town. Verse 29. The woman says, come see a man. And there's a bit of irony in that phrase right there. It could have been, these people knew her. Come see a man. Could have been the townspeople saying, yeah, you've already had five husbands, and the one you're living with now isn't your husband. So what, this is number seven now? And she's quick to say, no, no, this is a man who told me everything that I did. Could he be the Christ? Could he be the Messiah? Then look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed Because of his word, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Talk of the town. Because Jesus had a conversation with a woman at a well. And because this woman went into her hometown, 
and told the people there what she knew, even though she knew very little. She didn't know everything, but she did know some things. Because she told that, many in that town believed. And they said, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You know, the, the, John has been being very careful about this in, in these early chapters of John. In John 3, he tells the story about Nicodemus. In John 4, he tells the story about the woman at the well. And if we think about it, there, there couldn't be any more different people. Nicodemus was an educated Jew. He had social stature. He had religious stature. He was upright. The woman at the well was an outcast Samaritan. She was morally and socially deficient. She was misguided religiously. Uh, Another difference, Nicodemus comes in the night. This woman comes in the heat of the day. Couldn't be two more different people. But it's true that Jesus is the Savior of the world. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, Jesus is the Savior of everyone. It could have been said of Nicodemus that he was so good he had no need for a Savior. But he did. It could have been said of the woman at the well, she was so bad there was no way for her to be saved. But she was. Because truly, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Thomas Aquinas, back in the 1200s, a philosopher and theologian, said these two phrases right next to each other. He said that everyone is seeking God, and at the same time, everyone is fleeing God. And Aquinas went on to explain that, that everyone is seeking God. Now, most often, people don't realize that they're seeking God, that they are seeking all kinds of things. But what they're doing is they're seeking to be satisfied. They're seeking to be fulfilled And whether they know it or not, what they're really seeking is God because God's the only one who can fulfill them. This woman at the well is a prime example. She was seeking. She was seeking fulfillment in marriage. She was seeking fulfillment in a man. And that was where it was going to be. And she she went through husband after husband and not finding it. Everyone is seeking God, but at the same time, everyone is fleeing God, unwilling to bend the knee unwilling to acknowledge need, unwilling to acknowledge sin, and basically unable because we are spiritually dead and we need the Savior. What this passage of Scripture is proclaiming is that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. And wherever you have come from to get here today, It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter that if in your mind you just are so far beyond the ability to be saved. Or maybe the other, I don't need a Savior. I'm good on my own, and we know that's not true. Wherever you're from, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, if the last passage, the last section of my sermon was for believers to ponder their salvation. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, would you receive him today? Would you come to know him today?
He truly is, yes, indeed, the Savior of the world. He came to be your Savior. The last section of of this passage that I'd like us to look at as part of this conversation of Jesus on that day. If we looked at the talk at the well and the talk of the town, would you look briefly at the talk with the disciples? The disciples are kind of interesting in this passage of Scripture. They arrive at the well and they quickly go into the town. And verse 8 tells us that they had gone into the city to buy food. And then in verses 31 to 33, meanwhile the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? I like what Alistair Begg has said about this passage of Scripture. The disciples were more interested in sandwiches than they were in salvation. And then Jesus said something to them that needs to be said to every one of us, needs to be said to every single generation when he said this. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus said that to the disciples. I believe he's saying that to us today, followers of Jesus. We need to lift up our eyes. And we need to look. And we need to see that the fields are white for harvest. You know, when Jesus said that, he might have been literally meaning it because at that moment, maybe he said, look up, disciples. You're so interested in food. Look, there's a whole city of people that are coming out to talk to me and to find out what about this conversation I had with this woman. And they're all coming out to talk to us. Lift up your eyes and look. He could have meant it literally. I, I think he meant it also figuratively for all of us. To lift up our eyes and to see People need to come to Jesus. You know, you read church history, you read Christian biography, and you read about the great movements of the Spirit when in the sovereignty of God, the great many come to know Jesus. And what we see about the Christians of those days is that the Christians were filled with love for God, and we also see that the Christians were filled with love for the lost and for people to be saved. And there was this building desire in them to see lost people to become followers of Jesus. And no, that wasn't the cause of it because this was a movement in God's sovereignty. But that was what was in the church. Today will we lift up our eyes. Or Westchester, are are we so concerned about one another? Are we so concerned about our church? I love Westchester. But are we so concerned sometimes about our church and about our programs and our buildings and our reputations and our growth as Christians and our comfort as Christians and our health as the body of Christ here? Are are we so concerned that we've turned our eyes inward and we no longer can see the needs of the people around us. We no longer can see the the lost and the needy. And we have become blind to the blind 
our generation, we today need to hear the words of Jesus. Look up, I tell you. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white to harvest. Well, just as I close, would would everyone please bow your heads and my questions for us. Are you experiencing the living water? And is it quenching your thirst? If you are a follower of Jesus today, I pray that your response would be to ponder this great salvation. And that would just well up with you in you to worship God, to celebrate. If you aren't a follower of Christ, would today be the day that you choose to believe, that God would give you the faith to believe? Are you experiencing the living water and is it quenching your thirst? And then for all of us, just between the Lord and us, who does God want us to proclaim the living water to? Who needs to hear it if we know about it? Oh, Lord, help us lift up our eyes. Father, help us. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. I pray that it would speak to all of us by your Spirit. Lord, move in us. I do pray that Christians would worship you as they ponder this great salvation. Living water that quenches thirst. Father, for their unbelievers here, that today would be the day that your truth would open their eyes and they would receive, they would believe, they would drink of this living water. And Father, for all of us, as a church, that we would lift up our eyes, Heavenly Father, help us, that we would lift up our eyes and see the fields, the white for harvest, the needy around us. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see. Give us a willingness to look up. Do this by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen.